listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. We're back. It's 2018, and we're going to jump right in. We are hearing a lot of the news about Korea these days, uh, though it's mostly in terms of Trump's obsessive button-measuring contest with North Korea, or the tensions between North and South, but less in terms of global capitalism and trade. Today, we're bringing you a conversation about just that, about the workers who make Samsung smartphones. But first, the news. The Trump administration continues to double down on attacks on immigrants in the new year. The latest move, the revocation of temporary protected status for Salvadorans in the U.S. This comes on the heels, of course, of the revocation of TPS for Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Sudanese, and the revocation of DACA protections for childhood arrivals, although a judge this week did put a hold on the end of DACA. While that legal battle continues, 200,000 Salvadorans and their U.S.-born children face an uncertain future. I spoke with Jaime Contreras of SEIU 32BJ about TPS. First of all, I think it's unfortunate that, that TPS for close to 200,000 legal workers in the country is going to end as of uh, September 2019. You know, it's, it's, it's un-American, it's inhumane. You know, the, the excuse the administration gave to doing this is, well, there hasn't been an earthquake in El Salvador lately, so, or a natural disaster, and you, you know, no longer have a civil war. But, you know, the reality is, having, have been to El Salvador not too long ago, things in El Salvador, I mean, there's still dire poverty in El Salvador, unemployment, there's gang violence in El Salvador, and sending 200,000 workers, uh, who have, done everything right by the law, paying their taxes, contributing to the economy, who have, in addition to them, also have another over 200,000 U.S.-born children. What's going to happen to those kids and and these folks? I mean, it's really sending them back to misery and to some of them maybe even face death when they get back. And that, to me, is not the right thing to do. I came here... In 1988, during the Civil War in El Salvador, at the age of 13, my parents brought me here. I had no say in that decision. You know, since then, you know, I have uh, I have served in the United States military. I become a U.S. citizen. I own a house. I, you know, work every day. And you know, to me, it's offensive as a former military person yeah. that this administration is taking mm-hmm. this stance with immigrants who are no different than me. Can you explain a little bit more about what temporary protected status is for people who maybe aren't familiar with this? Yeah, so temporary protection status is given to people from countries uh, who are already in the United States undocumented or fleeing some sort of a natural disaster, a civil war, or right. you know conflict in their homeland. And it's given to those people as a way to protect them, to allow them to work legally in the United States, live without fear of deportation. That's really what temporary protection status is. It's been given to over 10 countries, including uh, Nicaragua, which was also eliminated, but it's a really small number of 2,500 people, Honduras, mm-hmm. uh, Haiti, uh, Sudan, and a bunch of other countries who are who have turmoil yeah. in their land. So those people have yeah. temporary protection status and you know, a lot of, you know, all those people are about to lose it. Oh, the largest recipient of TPS yeah. is really Salvadoran. Tell us a little bit about what your union has been doing in the last year. 32BJ obviously has a lot of members who are immigrants and from various places and various kinds of statuses. But talk a little bit about what the union has done 
this year on thinking about being fighting on fighting this administration on immigration? I mean, you know, we have been active locally on passing uh, sanctuary cities in jurisdictions where we can, driver's licenses for undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants. We've been uh, helping elect pro-immigrant, pro-worker politicians. Uh, we have been lobbying Congress. We have been creating coalitions to help mm-hmm. counterattack this, the attacks of this administration against immigrants. And we're gonna, con- you know, we're gonna continue to do all those things. I mean, for SEIU, you know, we have a hundred thousand Salvadorans or more organizing SEIU, which, if you know, yeah. most people estimate that one in five Salvadorans has TPS, which means at least twenty thousand of our members will be affected ne- negatively by mm-hmm. the actions of yeah. this administration. So it's incumbent upon us as SEIU uh, and thirty to BJ, but as a labor movement, to do and, and and continue to pressure these politicians to do the right thing. Is there anything um, that you can do in terms of job contracts and, and the workplace on this front? I mean, you know, we're going to be informing our members throughout the union about what some of the options are. You know, obviously, we're encouraging all the TPS recipients to renew their TPS. They do have eighteen more months after March to continue to mm-hmm. work here legally, but they have to renew. Uh, a lot of those TPS recipients are eligible for, for political asylum. Some of them could be petitioned by their employer. Some of them could be petitioned by their, you know, if they have children that are over 18. Uh, so we're going to be finding out all the things that are available currently for, for this population and help get the word out and get them connected to people who will responsibly help them uh, get through through this phase. And, and hopefully a good chunk of those people will be able to adjust their status by doing some of the things. That was Jaime Contreras of SEIU 32BJ. Disney World workers in Orlando kicked off the new year with a fervent rejection of the latest icy wage offer for its service workforce. For the union representing hotel housekeepers, custodians, and other service staff who make our magical happy visits happen, they rejected a paltry wage offer and pushed for a real living wage amid Florida's soaring cost of living. Disney's latest offer for a pay increase fell well short of the demand from the union Unite Here. They had sought a $15 hourly starting wage, but currently only about one in eight of the 38,000 union workers, including some 10,000 hospitality and housekeeping staff, along with cast members and ride operators, earns that much. The latest wage hike inched up starting pay from $8 to about $10. That's nowhere near a living wage in Florida. The company's current proposal would increase raises from 6 to 10% over two years, resulting in a boost in the floor wage of about 50 cents annually, even less for higher-paid workers. The union has been pushing for living wages for months, pointing out that many resort workers are being pushed into homelessness. While Disney has previously pledged to work toward fair and equitable terms in negotiations, workers drew the line last month, rejecting Disney's bid by a vote of 9,117 to 643. I spoke with hotel housekeeper Nervella Charles and Unite Here organizer Wilna Destin about what's at stake in the contract talks for their community, as well as recent actions around Trump's threats to the Haitian community as he rescinds a key immigration relief program known as TPS, which could affect many of the Disney workers. We're working together and, 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 you know, to fight for the ways, okay? 
we need everybody to make uh, their hand together to work in to do everything we need to do because we need to better life we need to change everything that is fine for the way i need the money if you don't have money nothing can change because you need the money to do everything you need if you don't have the money you can do nothing that we fight for the better life at disney we have over 500 um haitian with tps at disney so it's a lot of concerns you know for us yeah. we ask disney to support the tps to support the tps first of all disney say no no we don't want to support but we have a, an action in front of disney and that's when disney come out and say yes and he support the tps and we have universal also um another um bunch of Haitian works at Universal. We asked Universal to support um, TPS and Universal didn't want to support us. We do an action and, uh, in front of Universal. And then we went, we do a lot of actions, a lot of lobbying. We went to Washington DC, the union, and we went to Washington DC, talk to the Congress um, people and to see because they didn't want to do anything about the TPS. They say they're going to ended and we fought and we fought we went to washington dc they extended for six months and we went back and to washington dc again keep fighting now they they give it to us for um 18 another 18 months we we're winning it's a win for us but i think we can you know by um keep, keep fighting keep fighting we will win you know better thing for the tps not only for haitian we have Honduras, salvador a lot of uh, other countries with TPS and we stand together and fought, you know. That was Nervella Charles and Wilna Destin with Unite Here in Florida. Long-time belabored listeners know that I love nothing more than a good conversation about shorter working hours. Well, in Germany, at least, workers are not only making these demands, but now going on strike for them. IG Metall, Germany's largest union, is calling for employees in the metal and electrical sector to be able to reduce their working hours to 28 hours per week for up to two years, with the automatic right to return to full-time afterwards in favor of work-life balance. Workers who took the hour cut would get an additional allowance of 200 euros a month to help make up for the the money that they'd be losing. The union is also calling for a sector-wide 6% pay increase. More than 15,000 employees of companies that include automaker Porsche took warning strike action this week in support of these demands. Quote, we want employers to recognize that traditional gender roles in modern families are changing, and we want workers to have the chance to do work that is important to society, a union spokesperson told The Guardian. In the past, demands for more flexibility have come at the cost of workers. We want to flick a switch so that flexible working also benefits workers. Can I just say how lovely it is to hear an industrial union leader talking about changing gender roles? Anyway, employers, of course, want no part of this, and so this is shaping up potentially to be a major conflict of a kind not really seen in Germany in a while. Shorter hours in general have been part of IG Metall's demands for a long time, though the shortened 20-hour week for family issues is something different. Germany already has generous family leave policies, like basically every other industrialized nation that isn't the U.S., and theirs includes a recent shift towards encouraging fathers, too, to take parental leave. This kind of decreased work week for care responsibilities is an interesting step further down that route of encouraging gender equity. A shorter working week, researchers like Janet Gornick of CUNY have noted, is one of the best ways to encourage equity in the workplace as well as in unpaid work in the home. 
Of course, I'd love to hear about a union going on strike for a 28-hour week across the board, but until we get there, this is an interesting development. The Fight for 15 movement in New York City kicked off its new year with a big milestone since it first launched in the winter of 2012 with a handful of disgruntled New York City fast food workers. It takes the form of the launch of a nonprofit called Fast Food Justice that will advocate for better wages and working conditions for fast food workers across the city. It won't be a formal union, but it is firmly aligned with the movement, which is in turn aligned with SEIU, and will be certified under new city legislation that creates a legal mechanism for collecting fees directly from workers' monthly pay in order to support organizing activities. The law passed last year by the city council set up a program for worker organizations, establishes community-based groups rather than conventional unions, to advocate on workers' behalf while assessing a regular fee from workers' pay. Fast food outlets will be mandated to allow automatic deductions that will go straight into the group's funds to support organizing efforts. The law itself has been fiercely opposed by the industry and is now facing litigation. But the city announced this week that it is moving forward to the plan, and Fast Food Justice will be the first organization under the new ordinance to set up a full-fledged program for uh, what is the equivalent of basically a dues checkoff. So, of course, it's not an actual union, but um, it will create a system of monthly fees that are about $13.50. That's exactly the city's new minimum hourly wage for the sector. It will rise to $15 by next year. So think of this as a down payment on what's to come when the $15 mark is finally reached in 2019. So far, Fast Food Justice says about 1,200 workers have signed up for the checkoff. That far exceeds the requisite 500 worker mark that is required under the legislation. start this special year-end episode, or should I say year beginning, with a new perspective on that shiny new smartphone you got for the holidays. Amid all the geopolitical crises surrounding Asia right now, one thing that gets less attention in the media is the struggle of workers to protect their rights and to check the economic turmoil that corporate globalization has wrought. The workers who made your state-of-the-art mobile gadget may well be suffering from primitive working conditions in Vietnam. Many there are reportedly suffering toxic exposures and other abuses at Samsung manufacturing facilities based in Vietnam, a country that the U.S. has cultivated as a trade partner under Trump. Toxic exposures and other abuses were recently highlighted in a report by the international NGO IPEN, as well as the Vietnam-based organization CGFED. Women are suffering unusual rates of miscarriage, according to the study, as well as fainting spells, elevated disease risk, and just general exhaustion from the inhumane working schedules. But the authoritarian government in Vietnam has refused to address the report's claims and threatened to fire the workers and sue the researchers who worked on it. I spoke with Joseph Deganji, one of the lead authors of the report, about the plight of these workers and what it tells us about some of the biggest brands in global tech today and what the public, consumers, and the labor movement can do to help bring justice for this often invisible and silenced workforce. The report actually investigates uh, the largest export industry in Vietnam, which is the electronics industry. This is a 
very large industry and surpassed the garment industry recently. And the largest player in the electronics industry is the Korean company, Samsung. So Samsung makes about half of their mobile phones globally in Vietnam. And about 80% of the workforce uh, is comprised of women. So we asked a very simple question, which is, what are the working conditions like and what do women who work in this industry have to say about it? We were surprised that no one else had asked this question, considering how important the industry is economically and how many people work in it. Uh, but we asked that question, and our colleagues at the Research Center for Gender, Family, Environment, and Development, uh, CGFED, in Hanoi basically conducted this study by doing in-depth interviews with 45 female workers and about half of them worked at one large mobile phone factory and half worked at another. Uh, women in general are all migrants from within Vietnam. So they're coming from small towns and villages and migrating to the company town. Describe what it's like to be on the job in these places. Um, uh, what is their day-to-day -day experience? All of the women work standing up for 8 to 12 hours a day. Uh, the ones that we talk to are assembling mobile phones. And uh, as a result of standing, presumably, many of them reported joint problems and leg pain. Um, there were some other disturbing findings. Uh, none of the women we interviewed were given a copy of their work contract, uh, and that's a violation of Vietnamese law. Uh, all of them worked under high noise conditions. It's an open factory floor, uh, and those conditions, according to the meter that they were looking at, also violate Vietnamese regulatory limits. Uh, other factors or other findings uh, were that uh, they reported that miscarriage uh, appeared to be extremely common. All of them reported feeling dizzy or even fainting at work. Uh, and despite the fact that they work in an open factory setting where other workers are using a variety of substances, uh, they did not consider their own job to be um, either using chemicals or to have any remote possibility of chemical exposure. Uh, some of them noted that the training period seemed to vary based on uh, how much of a hurry the factory was in uh, for a particular production deadline. Right, and presumably there was a pretty high volume of work and the, the job itself was pretty demanding in terms of what these workers have to reduce. I mean, this is a huge mass market that Samsung is working with, and um, I, I imagine that the factory is pretty high stress. Yes, uh, the math is pretty remarkable. Uh, the women earn about uh, 230 U.S. dollars a month, and some of the model uh, mobile phones they make in the U.S. would cost between six and eight hundred dollars, and each of the women assembles about 2,000 phones a day or more depending on their overtime. When I ask people to guess, most of them will guess maybe a hundred or something, but it's quite large. Right. Were they aware of what was happening to them, the environmental conditions at all? I mean, I imagine that 
even if they received even a very cursory training, they would have been perhaps briefed on how to properly handle some of the materials or warned of what they might be feeling? It seemed to really um, vary according to the training period, and it was not clear to us uh, what that training actually comprised. Uh, sometimes uh, claims about training in these settings uh, is is actually a training about how great the company is, um, not not the details of your of your job and what to how to protect yourself. Um, so that wasn't clear to us. Um, a one of the things that the report triggered was a government investigation. Uh, this was sort of a, a hurry-up job conducted by the Ministry of Labor in the two factories that we investigated. And this investigation found uh, three violations, and one of them was inadequate training, actually. And as you said, I mean, that was a pretty light touch investigation, it seems. It did not, um, you had come to conclusions that were much more serious um, than the government's. Yes, there were gaps, uh, and they acknowledged some of those gaps, but uh, it's a little hard to know exactly um, the details of the investigation because it was not released publicly and we're kind of using a, um, a short press article to get information about it. So it's not clear exactly what it entailed. Um, they did find violations in work contracts. They didn't say what those were. Uh, and then um, they also found excessive hours of work. And that was something else that the women reported to us. They did not find health symptoms? They said that they did not look at that. So that in and of itself was just basically going completely outside of what you guys were primarily focusing on. Yes. Um, we're not sure exactly how the investigation came about. Um, it would not surprise us if the company requested the investigation to just sort of uh, finish the matter um, according to, you know, in their, from their perspective in the press. Right. Well, what is the relationship between Samsung and these regulators? Um, is there any sense that the government would have an interest in covering this up or downplaying the results of an investigation? Um, there's obviously some transparency issue at play here. Um, they, they don't seem to be disclosing very much at all. And, and how common is this for the government to interact with corporations in such a way? Well, it's uh, not clear to us how often they do these type of investigations. The company has claimed that uh, they have some annual visit uh, from the Ministry of Labor, but uh, the climate um, in the country is one that's uh, very protective of foreign direct investment. And since Samsung is such a huge contributor to that, uh, it um, they are quite careful about um, how the company is treated. Um, I can comment a little bit about the company's reaction to the report, uh, which was a little surprising to us. You know, we sort of viewed our report as a modest collection of pretty standard things that workers would note. Uh, and so we sort of viewed these women as people who wanted to keep their jobs but wanted improvement in their conditions. And uh, what we 
got in return um, at when the re- when the company got a hold of the report, the first thing that happened was they threatened all their workers with lawsuit and dismissal if they talked to outsiders. So this made it very difficult for the story to be covered because any journalist will want to talk to the workers, and this effectively shut that off. Is that legal? It's not clear how legal it is, uh, but they did it. Um, and we know this because we were told um, by, by a worker, actually. Um, and um, the second thing that happened was they threatened our Vietnamese uh, public interest NGO colleagues with a lawsuit. Uh, they did that twice. And in Korea, the company usually threatens this kind of thing verbally so as not to leave a paper trail. But in Vietnam, they actually put it on letterhead and they sent it to the NGO. Uh, And we have documentation of that. Um, The letter uh, was interesting. Um, They, in the letter, they denied that the women even work for the company. Um, And they said that um, these interviews and our report would damage foreign direct investment in Vietnam, which we do not think is true and it was not our intention. Um, And uh, they requested us not to publish the report and then they threatened legal action. So that's what happened there. Uh, Then uh, they... um, the vice president of Samsung Vietnam uh, on 1st of December uh, told reporters in a sort of public press piece that they were trying to decide whether they should sue IPEN, which is the organization I work for. So they have sort of threatened both organizations uh, with lawsuits. And then they also have been working through at least one government agency, uh, The one that we know about is one that oversees foreign direct investment in the province where one of the factories is located. I know that Vietnamese, while it is a very um, restricted society in terms of free expression and um, political organizing, there are um, considerable numbers of of civil society groups there um, operating in various capacities. Um, including environmental, what is the landscape for people who are advocating for these workers? Is there, for instance, an active trade union movement? There is uh, no independent trade unions in Vietnam, and I think that is one of the the problems, actually, um, in in this case, and it's one of the recommendations that we made. Uh, The country has not ratified the relevant dialogue conventions and the trade unions uh, actually have their salaries paid by the government. Um, The company itself um, fits very well with that um, sort of uh, legal structure because uh, wherever the company operates, and it's also true in Korea, uh, the company claims that Um, Its management is um, so highly developed that no trade unions are needed. Uh, And um, colleagues at the International Trade Union Confederation actually received a leaked document, uh, which was a Samsung presentation about how to identify people that might want to form a trade union and how to undermine them. Uh, So uh, the company is hostile to it, and that fits very well with um, a situation where there are currently no independent unions. And in many cases, worker advocacy groups are actually suppressed. That's correct. 
And and that is the case with the NGO that you're working with. For them, uh, they you know there are limitations uh, for NGOs uh, operating in certain areas. Um, they must receive permission to talk to foreign reporters, depending on um, you know if a foreign reporter wants to go to Vietnam and speak to them, they have to request permission. Uh, they have to request permission to release their report, um, but. The NGO colleagues at um, the Research Center for Gender, Family, and Environment and Development are quite familiar with their own country. They've been operating there since 1993, focusing primarily on issues related to women. Uh, so they've done joint projects with the Ministry of Labor, uh, and they, they understand uh, their own place quite well. The um, NGO colleagues conducted very in-depth interviews, and you've reported quite a bit on this topic, and I think it's understood among people that do these kinds of studies and reporting that workers are very hesitant to talk about their work. They're nervous, and they do not want to be uh, penalized or have their job affected in any way. So uh, we feel like getting 45 women to speak with us is actually a very large number. And the fact that their comments were so similar to each other um, sort of um, reinforces that. There were very good reasons that you maybe were not um, seeking permission uh, from the government prior to your investigation because these things are, are something that the government is not used to making public and has a huge financial stake in. Yes, I, I think uh, actually um, it really uh, did not violate any government rule or law. Um, I think it's mostly a company um, sort of problem. Um, and, um, you know, one of the ironic consequences of the women not receiving a copy of their work contracts was that none of them could precisely remember the part about confidential business information. And we were not interested in that anyway. Um, but uh, it's it's sort of an irony since they couldn't remember it anyway, then they just were felt free to talk about it um, or to talk about their working condition. What recourse does the Vietnamese government or these workers themselves have against Samsung um, if we do have this evidence and if there is a, a real legal claim here? Well, to begin, I think uh, the Ministry of Labor um, should uh, step up and increase their both the strength and the frequency of their investigations. Um, they found three violations, and I think if they keep looking, they'll find more. And as far as the company's responsibility, I guess first and foremost, they should be obeying Vietnamese law if they're operating there. They've, of course, strongly denied that they have violated these, um, these laws. For us, in the short term, I think we would like to see the company publicly uh, state that workers have a right to speak about their working conditions. Um, that's something that a trade union would typically insist upon, but the company should state that, and they should also publicly state that uh, they will not file lawsuits against um, either uh, CG Fed or IPEN as a result of just collecting testimonies uh, from whistleblowers who work at their own facilities. 
Um, we'd like to see the company address the issues that are raised in the study. And um, as you know, that should be done with the involvement of workers themselves, because those are the people that know best um, and, and have uh, the best sense of their own work and their own jobs. We'd also like to see um, more transparency about chemical use at these factories. Uh, the company is kind of famous um, for its secrecy surrounding chemical use. Uh, that's true um, in Korea, and it's certainly true in Vietnam. And uh, there's a, a lack of um, sort of laws to require it, but um, we think that's an important thing that they should address. In Korea as well, there have been numerous reports of workers being harmed on the job due to the labor conditions at Samsung facilities. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, in fact, um, colleagues in Korea have commented that this uh, report about workers in Vietnam, uh, what the workers said and the company reaction reminds them strongly of Samsung here in Korea 10 years ago. And this is a common pattern that we see, um, things that um, these companies could never get away with in the places where they are based because those countries are more developed, will simply ship the jobs over the border um, and seek places with cheaper labor costs and, and uh, with fewer regulations. It's worked that way for them in Vietnam, and that's why they have invested so heavily there. But even in Korea, which has uh, more regulatory infrastructure, uh, what typically happens is that when a worker becomes sick, uh, the company will try to interfere with their compensation, which comes from a government program. So does not even come from the pocket of the company, but the company is very anxious not to have any illness linked to work at its facilities. And so what the, the pattern which has evolved over the last 10 years is that uh, somebody gets sick at their job, they file a work uh, a compensation claim uh, with the relevant government agency, and then the agency says, well, what what is it that caused your illness? And then the worker tries to get the information about chemical use, and the company said, well, we cannot give you that because it's a trade secret. So then the compensation is denied. I mean, what does this say about the nature of the global uh, tech manufacturing sector? What does this tell us about the, the types of labor inequities that we see across this region and why it's happening there? Well, it, it seems like uh, the companies do it because it works. And also, as you know, the, the industry is built on these complicated supply chains uh, and many of the contracts that are made with uh, contract workers and contracting companies are based on price, not on worker safety. Um, and uh, this this allows for producing things at a cost the company wants to pay, uh, but um, worker illness um, is secondary. One of the things that I think is not commonly appreciated by the public who has these products in their pockets and purses and backpacks is that um, the industry is quite chemically intensive. Many 
parents of um, workers that have gotten sick, and some of them, unfortunately, who have died here in Korea, have said that, well, they thought that the clothing, uh, that um, the uniform that their son or daughter was wearing would actually protect them on the job. Uh, and as you know, that uniform is designed to protect the, the product, uh, not, not the person who's making it. Is it your understanding that in Vietnam and maybe other places that there are appropriate regulations and laws on the books? It's just that they're very poorly enforced? Uh, actually, in Vietnam, there, there is no sort of comprehensive regulation governing the electronics industry. The government has expressed um, interest in developing quality control um, types of regulations to demonstrate that its products can be exported without question and can meet uh, manufacturer standards. But uh, the actual regulations uh, dealing with worker safety in the industry have yet to be developed. I imagine there are probably some pollution controls in the country in general. There are, but usually in Vietnam and in in many countries, uh, enforcement is weak uh, and the ability to monitor is also weak. Uh, And so um, things sort of balloon out of control before they get addressed. uh, And that, that angers the public and causes harm. What can consumers do or what should consumers here in the U.S. be aware of? Is there something that ordinary consumers can do to hold Samsung accountable? Well, um, these phones are the Samsung phones that are quite popular worldwide. Um, The U.S. is one of the primary destinations of phones made in Vietnam. And in a gentle sort of way, we would like people to um, question and to know more about the people who actually made their things. I think there's increasing interest in this in the U.S. and in Europe um, that people would like to know sort of where this stuff comes from and who made it and under what conditions. Um, We're not in any position to organize any large-scale boycott, but we would be interested in people expressing concern about this topic. Um, And that would be helpful for the people who are making these things. It seems like a lot of these trade arrangements between nations, for instance, the pending Trans-Pacific Partnership um, that's going to be sort of a regional NAFTA-type deal. They're generally there to pretty much serve corporate profits. Uh, That's usually how they're designed, and uh, that's why there's very little involvement of anyone who's either not a corporate executive or a government representative sort of serving the the companies who are negotiating those agreements. And uh, there's a long history and sort of struggle to to get a broader public interest perspective into those um, agreements. There is an international agreement focused on chemical safety, which actually has named uh, the use of chemicals and electronics as a global emerging policy issue. This agreement is called the Strategic Approach to International Chemicals Management. It's not a household name, but it is a policy agreement led by the United Nations Environment Program. It was finalized in 2006, and in 2009, uh, more than 100 countries agreed that um, hazardous chemicals in 
design, production, and waste were a serious problem and needed to be addressed. The, the agreement is not legally binding, and so that provides some escape clause uh, for those who do not want to um, pursue it. However, we have found that the agreement is quite useful uh, because it does provide government acknowledgement and government endorsement of issues that need to be addressed. And so um, in many countries where civil society groups and worker organizations are operating, their efforts um, can be viewed and actually are contributions to policies that their governments have already agreed to globally. In 2011, there were a series of recommendations uh, developed um, at an expert group meeting that were subsequently endorsed. Uh, the U.S. is included in that group, and so is Vietnam and China and everybody else. And um, these are very detailed recommendations uh, for um, design, um, production, and the waste parts of the life cycle. And um, they uh, represent quite a good guide for governments as they seek to address this issue. Where is the greatest hope um, for some kind of public leverage over this issue. It seems like the Vietnamese government is not interested in engaging public advocacy groups, um, even internationally. Where can we put pressure on them? I think the government is actually interested in this topic. And uh, what they um, need to figure out and sort of understand for themselves is how to approach it. And I think that um, this may be a good opportunity for them to realize the value of civil society organizations and working with them. One of the interesting things that happened when we were starting the study was that the International Labor Organization, together with the Vietnam Electronics Industry Association, decided to launch a business coalition. And the purpose of this coalition is to promote what they call socially responsible labor practices. So this is a way for um, an international agency, UN agency, to sort of assist the government ministry uh, with this area. And um, in our view, our colleagues in Vietnam should be part of this coalition. They should be able to participate in it because they have something um, in interesting information to provide and they have interesting recommendations to make. You know, for what it's worth, these corporate social responsibility codes, they're pretty common in the industry now. I think the issue is whether corporations can be trusted to essentially regulate themselves. Yes, our focus would be actual real regulation and its enforcement. Um, as you know, uh, the industry loves third-party audits, um, and that actually has been the primary substance of the uh, response from Samsung about the report. Um, they say that um, our third-party audits show a very different result, and they use um, auditing firms apparently approved by what used to be known as the Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition. Uh, now it has a new name, the Responsible Business Alliance. So uh, those firms are uh, apparently used and um, you know, they just audit what the company tells them to audit. And I, I think you are quite familiar with them. And it's a 
fairly gender-segregated workforce. Does this say something about the status of women, women workers especially, and what types of labor justice they have access to? Yes, it's an interesting question and and something else that's not commonly known sort of on a household basis that it's actually women making uh, this equipment. And my understanding is that women actually helped make the electronics industry a um, a large scale industry primarily because manu- uh, companies would pay them less money. And so uh, it evolved in that way. Um, in Vietnam, um, the uh, attitude and elsewhere actually um, the attitude of companies is that women are easier to control uh, and they will work for less money more obedient and uh, they can uh, still get the job done Um, and uh, so in many ways uh, there's a certain vulnerability that gets created because without a independent trade union um, advocating for them uh, it pretty much depends upon what the company is willing to do that's why this um, report uh, and this study is is unusual in vietnam um, and maybe that is what is some of the source of the overreaction on the part of the company Right. And um, the group that you're working with is, um, it doesn't seem to be primarily a trade union. It's its one that advocates around women's issues. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, they're a, sort of a gender equity NGO for, for many years, working on many different issues, including uh, other chemicals related issues, um, for example, uh, with pesticides in agriculture and, and many other topics. Women are the first environment for, for children, and in many ways, the health of, of women workers in Vietnam is the key to Vietnam's future. And that's why we feel very strongly that um, this condition should be improved and, and they should be protected. That was Joseph Deganji of IPEN talking about Vietnamese Samsung workers. You can get the full report at asiapacificforum.org. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. One of the constant fights we have to have over and over again in the Me Too moment is about whether we are talking about sex or about work. Over and over, the critics whine that punishing sexual harassment is just going to end sex, romance, eros, or who the heck knows. But as I and many, many other writers have noted, the problem isn't really about sex, but about work and power. So friend of the show, J.C. Pan's piece at The Nation, reviewing a new book about work and power in the context of Me Too, is a welcome entry in this uh, struggle. Titled Arbitrary Rule, it's a review of Elizabeth Anderson's new book, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. Pan starts off by situating Harvey Weinstein as a bad boss, not a bad date, or a guy who just couldn't figure out how to hit on women properly, but a bad boss who took a pleasure in the amount of power he had over women, and many other men who behaved the same way across all sorts of industries, from film and journalism to food service and nursing. These cases, Pan writes, demonstrates the fundamental inequality of the employment relation itself. We have to understand that employment relation in order to change it or, you know, maybe destroy it. 
In Anderson's book, she notes the many, many abuses of power that are perfectly legal in the workplace, from denial of bathroom breaks to firings for Facebook posts to rifling through our purses in case we're stealing. It is one of the ironies of the Me Too moment that sexual harassment is one of the few workplace abuses that workers do have some legal protections from, even as we realize just how flimsy those protections are. Pan writes, quote, Anderson's book isn't explicitly about the recent wave of scandals in Hollywood and beyond, and yet her notion of corporations acting as private governments nevertheless seems an accurate characterization of Weinstein's singular control over his company, where he regularly terrorized employees, even those who escaped his sexual advances, with vicious outbursts and temper tantrums. It also characterizes the other workplaces that have harbored high-level harassers, such as the New Republic offices during Leon Wieseltier's tenure there, who, in addition to sexual inappropriate behavior towards women, reportedly used his status to bully and belittle underlings of any gender with impunity. The expression open secret, which has been repeatedly invoked over the past few months to describe the behavior of prominent men who harass their subordinates, suggests it wasn't that no one believed the women reporting the harassment, but that few were interested in stopping it, or more likely that they simply lacked the ability to do so because of the far-reaching authority those bosses held. What's most troubling about these instances is not that they're wild outliers, but rather that they are highly visible variations on the power asymmetry that structures the majority of American workplaces. As many as 80% of workers in the United States, Anderson claims, are subject to dictatorship at work. About a quarter already explicitly describe their workplaces as such, and those who don't are one arbitrary and oppressive managerial decision away from understanding how painfully thin their rights at work are. The discretion exercised by managers daily ranges from the mundane, your supervisor screaming at you for not responding to his email within minutes, but taking days to respond to yours, to the deranged, the foreman at an Amazon warehouse in Pennsylvania who refused to open the doors and allow air circulation on a hot day for fear of theft, preferring instead to let assembly line workers collapse from heat stroke. End quote. The solution to all of this isn't hashtag girl bosses, as Pan notes, women bosses have been accused of everything from sexual harassment to regular old workplace tyranny. The solution is to change the employment relation for employees to have more power. And you, our listeners, know the best way to do that is to have a fighting union. And my pick for ARG is Protests in Iran Took Many by Surprise, But Not Iranian Labor Activists by Murtaza Hussein at The Intercept. So when we think about revolution and social change movements around the world, our perceptions are colored by the view that these are lofty-minded intellectuals, youthful idealists, people wired to social media, college campus protest movements that aspire to the Western freedoms that their educations have exposed them to. They're all noble causes, but you know that tempting image is often not reality. And we got a glimpse of this disconnect again, it seemed, in Iran in the past few days. For the first time since the so-called Green Revolution of 2009, protesters were out in force in the streets in a surprisingly energetic wave of demonstrations. They opposed many different things. It can't really be called a fully-fledged organized movement. Um, there was no unifying ideology, and the activists represented a pretty broad spectrum of different segments of society. But that's just the thing. What actually united these people was a militant working-class solidarity, and a lot of it was coming from provincial towns and cities, notably not Tehran, which is historically the intellectual hub and cultural center of the country. 
Hussein reports that economic grievances, inequality, and frustration with the regime of neoliberal policies, as well as rank corruption, have generated the bulk of the current unrest. He writes, unlike the 2009 Green Movement, which is largely a product of educated urban Tehrani middle class, the recent protests in Iran appear to reflect the anger of the country's working class masses. As Iranians grapple with high inflation, unemployment, and economic corruption, the burden of these problems has fallen most heavily on young people who lack the political connections to survive, let alone raise their standard of living. That's actually perhaps a pretty familiar picture to disconnected youth in the West who feel that there really is no future. Iran does have a surprisingly rich history of labor activism, and this is often glossed over in the West love affair with its Western pro-democracy activists. But, Hussein notes, historically, workers' movements in Iran have been an important center of power in the country. During the 1979 Iranian Revolution, labor organizers helped play a decisive role in the fall of the Pahlavi monarchy, particularly oil workers, whose decision to go on strike in the late days of the revolution brought the country's economy to a halt. Unquote. Since many trade union bodies have effectively been co-opted by the state, Grassroots action outside of formal labor organizations has historically helped galvanize public unrest, even though it is very limited under the current regime. In the absence of other activist infrastructure, it's really all these workers have. Hussein points out that often political oppression and economic oppression have reinforced each other in Iran. He notes the increasing militarization of Iranian society and, quote, takeover of components of the economy by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And there is one sugar plant in particular that has been ground zero for worker solidarity, and it's a good example of how workers in Iran actually have a long tradition of mass organizing in the workplace as a form of political expression. The militancy seems to be spontaneous and self-directed, But it's not politically naive, and it's definitely not a product of foreign manipulation. You see the same pattern emerging across the Middle East and North Africa. Recently, Tunisia has also erupted in youth-led protests based on similar economic grievances. The inability of foreign media outlets and Western observers to contemplate militant labor action in Iran is in part a sign of the Western political class's lack of knowledge about how everyday populist activism plays out in this relatively insular and repressive country. But it also speaks to perhaps the class blinders of the people who pay attention to the Iranian activist movements from both the U.S. and Europe. And that, in turn, may be a symptom of the political insularity here in the West from the concerns of working-class people everywhere. You might say workers are overlooked on both sides of the world. So in that sense, Iran is not only surprisingly energetic in its populism, but the workers out in the streets represented a problem with political movements around the world, including those right here in the U.S. Every day, the people with the most at stake get overlooked or dismissed as apathetic or unsophisticated. So while Iran's populace stun the elites both at home and abroad, we should be paying attention to them too as perhaps a living example of how workers on the other side of the world are really not so different from us after all. That's all for this week. Tune in in two weeks. Please let us know how you are kicking off the start of 2018, starting a workplace action, 
or going on one of the many marches that are helping to kick off Trump's second year in office. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.